growing closeness between Israel and its Gulf Arab neighbors, some of it out in the open, some of it not. Will Saudi Arabia open diplomatic relations with Israel? U.S. officials are trying to reach a breakthrough. For Sunday, August 13th, this is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Daniel Estrin. This hour, we'll hear the latest on search and relief efforts in Maui. Plus, school is starting soon. One teacher has a creative way to engage introverts. It just, it interests them a little more. So like, instead of just raising a hand, which you're doing all day, now you have this other element and you have to think about how it connects to other things. And the actor who played the dorky guy Dwight on The Office would like to talk about God. The stand-up comics and comedic actors of Hollywood have no idea what to do. I alienated even the unalienatable. Those stories after the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Search and rescue operations continue in Maui as emergency crews work to contain a series of wildfires that have devastated the island. Officials in Hawaii say the death toll from the blazes has risen to at least 93 and is expected to rise as first responders cover more ground. NPR's Jason DeRose reports the fires are the deadliest in the U.S. in more than 100 years. The largest fire on the western part of the island was in and around Lahaina. More than 2,200 structures were damaged or destroyed when the fire started Tuesday and quickly swept through the historic town. From offshore, you can see charred buildings and the remains of buildings. It looks like a smile without teeth. Maui County officials say 86% of those destroyed structures were residential, leaving hundreds of people without homes. The county estimates it will cost more than $5.5 billion to rebuild what was lost. Jason DeRose, NPR News, Maui. The first weekend of the annual Iowa State Fair has been a magnet for presidential candidates. NPR's Don Gagne was there. Donald Trump drew the biggest crowd this weekend, but he declined an invite from the state's GOP Governor Kim Reynolds to join her in conversation in front of fairgoers. Trump says he won't do it because Reynolds has not endorsed him. She has remained neutral in the race. Other candidates have sat down with Reynolds at the fair, including Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley. Later this week, Senator Tim Scott is scheduled to join the governor at the fair. The state fair comes just five months before the Iowa caucuses. Traditionally, it's a place for voters to size up candidates in person, though this year Trump's oversized presence has overshadowed his challengers. Don Gagne, NPR News, Des Moines. Ukraine says it's advancing along two fronts in its counteroffensive to push Russian forces out of occupied land. NPR's Joanna Kikissis reports. Ukraine's military says it has advanced at least 10 miles toward two key cities in the south, Berdyansk on the Sea of Azov and Melitopol, a transportation hub. The U.S.-based Institute for the Study of War calls the advances tactically significant because they are forcing Russian troops to divert resources. Meanwhile, Ukrainian border guards put up a new sign in their country's national colors, blue and yellow, on Snake Island, a strategic location on the Black Sea. The sea has turned into a combat zone in the last month, with Russia bombing Ukrainian ports and Ukraine attacking Russian warships. Joanna Kekesis, NPR News, Dnipro. And Ukraine's also promising to defend its territorial waters in the Black Sea. This is NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm John Cropilio in Boston. Well, time is running out to take advantage of the sales tax-free weekend in Massachusetts. It ends with the close of business tonight. Many items are tax-free, up to $2,500. However, some, including meals, gas, tobacco, and alcohol, are not exempt from the 6.25% tax. The Coast Guard is searching for a missing crew member from a Nantucket-based fishing boat. The Coast Guard was alerted around 8 o'clock last night that a member of the crew was missing. Several cutters and a helicopter are involved in that search. Well, it was another day of uh, flood cleanup for people in Haverhill, North Andover, Lawrence, and Methuen. The mayor of Haverhill estimates his city suffered well over $1 million in infrastructure damage from torrential rains last Tuesday. Mayor James Frontini says he's concerned about residents. People who are, who are up here who are hurting, whose houses were flooded, whose businesses were wiped out, are flooded, and don't have insurance. They're covered by insurance, they'll be okay. But the people not covered, they're our concern, and they're the ones we want to help. Ferrantini says he is hoping the Healy administration can provide some assistance. He does not think his city can qualify for federal disaster relief. Well, bridge repairs will cause some traffic delays starting tonight in various North Shore communities. The State Department of Transportation says repairs are planned on bridges between Beverly and Salem and between Newburyport and Salisbury. Again, drivers should be aware that work begins tonight. The Red Sox defeated Detroit this afternoon at Fenway Park by a score of 6-3. The Sox open a series in Washington against the Nationals on Tuesday. Some showers and thunderstorms around for the rest of the afternoon with temperatures in the 80s. It becomes mostly clear overnight. Lows drop to the 60s. Mostly sunny, low 80s tomorrow. And once again, the threat of showers and thunderstorms on Tuesday. Tuesday's highs in the 70s. 84 in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Daniel Estrin. In 2020, I was on an historic flight. Captain speaking, I would like to inform you that uh, we have just crossed the border to Saudi Arabia for the first time in the history of Israel airliners. It was the first time an Israeli airliner made a public flight from Israel to the United Arab Emirates. At the time, this was a huge deal. Israel was on the path to a diplomatic treaty with a major Arab country. Emiratis had agreed to normalize relations with Israel. But to get from Israel to the United Arab Emirates, you have to cross Saudi Arabia. And so the Saudis opened their airspace to the Israelis. Now, this might seem like a small thing, but that flight was a step toward an even bigger diplomatic goal. Formal relations between Israel and Saudi Arabia, arguably the most influential Arab country. It was the kind of symbolic gesture that Israel has been seeking for decades. A breakthrough like diplomatic relations is still many months away or more, if it happens. But there has been steady momentum in that direction that's being touted by those who want it to happen, especially Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. I think that we are about to witness a pivot of history, maybe. 
Felicia Schwartz is a correspondent for the Financial Times, and she's been doing a deep dive into the intensive shuttle diplomacy of the last few months with senior U.S. officials going to Saudi Arabia. There is this growing closeness between Israel and its Gulf Arab neighbors, some of it out in the open, some of it not, like Israel and Saudi. And I think policymakers want to take advantage of of that and use that as a new kind of lever. The U.S. and Saudi Arabia are negotiating a three-way deal involving the U.S., Israel, and Saudi Arabia. That would be kind of the crown jewel of Israel's ambition to be regarded as a as a kind of equal significant power in in the region, but also helping the Americans to create a Middle East that subscribes to its worldview where all of its close partners can cooperate with each other in the open. President Biden says a deal may be underway. He would get to preside over an historic agreement before he runs for re-election. But Saudi and Israeli leaders have had chilly relations with Biden. They have supported Donald Trump before, and they might want to wait for a better deal if he becomes president again. I think that these talks have gotten more serious as the parties and the players in all of the capitals understand that the window of time for this process to happen is closing. But it seems like an almost impossible three-way agreement. I asked Felicia Schwartz about some of the hurdles. The Saudis want civil nuclear cooperation with the U.S. and some sort of defense pact guarantee assurance. The Israelis want formal relations with Saudi Arabia. They want to open embassies, all of the kind of formal, public handshakes, travel, everything. The U.S. wants Israel to be formally recognized by Saudi Arabia, and they want the Saudis to help them convince Israel to make concessions for the Palestinians to, at the very least, meaningfully improve Palestinians' quality of life and perhaps somehow flick at their aspirations for statehood. What is the timeline here? How Mm -hmm. likely is this deal? I think if it's going to happen under President Biden, it's the next six to nine, maybe six to 12 months. The senior officials I've spoken with put the likelihood at less than 50 percent. There's a lot of work to be done. It probably won't happen. But I think the fact that we're even talking about that it could is extraordinary. So what's standing in the way? Well, for one thing, Saudi Arabia wants a civilian nuclear program. It says for peaceful purposes like generating electricity. But Schwartz says if the Saudis are able to enrich and reprocess uranium on Saudi soil, they could use it to eventually create a nuclear bomb to counter perceived threats from Iran's nuclear program. And then there's the fact that in recent years, the Saudi leadership has grown unpopular in the U.S. for a variety of reasons. One being the 2018 murder of Jamal Khashoggi, a dissident journalist, the war in Yemen, which particularly in Congress, Saudi got a lot of heat for indiscriminately killing civilians, heavy-handed tactics. And then also, you know, the Saudis have been taking steps to cut oil production as gas prices for Americans are are high. So there is a feeling for many people that Saudi Arabia, for a lot of reasons, isn't a great partner. The crown prince and de facto ruler of Saudi Arabia is Mohammed bin Salman, MBS. He's known for cracking down on dissidents. 
The U.S. intelligence community released a report assessing that he personally approved the operation to capture or kill Jamal Khashoggi. I think the Americans feel like, okay, they put out this report. They showed that MBS is guilty. I think privately they've they've certainly raised it with him. And I mean, he had a nickname going around Washington, Mr. Bonesaw, MBS. (laughs) It's just remarkable to see where we've come since then. I think it's incredibly remarkable, but but maybe in a way, if you've been around Washington as long as I have and, and, and others way longer, I think it's just not that surprising at the end of the day. Biden said that human rights was going to be at the center of his foreign policy. I think it's very clear that, you know, he's definitely paid lip service to that. But there are a lot of just fundamental American priorities that sometimes mean getting into bed with unsavory characters, and and, and MBS is one of them. What about the fact that the, you know, the Saudi leadership and the Israeli leadership, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, had been so close to former President Trump? Why don't they just wait for a potential Trump presidency? Why would they want to strike a deal with Biden? That is the million-dollar question that sort of gets at this why is it this six to nine month time frame? I think it will have more legitimacy if it happens under a Democratic president, because I think pro-Israel sentiment in the Democratic Party is slipping. And Democrats, based on all the bad blood for a whole host of reasons with them and the Republicans and Trump in particular and the pro-Israel policy moves that he took, are not going to want to give him a pro-Israel victory that requires the support of Congress. So there is a kind of confluence of political forces in the U.S. that can find each other now, and it's not really clear that they could find each other in the same way post-2024. And a deal could be a big win for Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. It would cement his place in history. I think he is, no one is more concerned about their legacy than Benjamin Netanyahu. And this would be the thing. This would be, this would be the, this is the dream of Israel since it was created as a state. So, I mean, it might wash away some of his, you know, more controversial corruption cases and everything that he's facing, but he's got to get there. And for the Palestinians? Unfortunately, while what to do about the Palestinians looms large over these conversations, they're, they're really not a part of them. And so what's in it for the Palestinians? Maybe nothing, unfortunately. I spoke about this with Badr Asif. He's an assistant professor of history at Kuwait University. I asked him what the significance of the deal would be for the region. It will only be significant if Palestine is front and center in this deal. No amount of normalization with any Arab state, for that matter, can manage to shake this issue without Palestine being front and center. I know that the Saudis have this in their mind, regardless of the many narratives that we hear out there. And it's unfortunate that a lot of the narratives that we hear are either U.S.-centric or Israel-centric. And the Saudi view or the Arab view, by extension, gets lost in the process. And I think it's time for this to be balanced off. There will not be any movement forward without a resolution to the Palestinian issue. And by a resolution, I mean a permanent, sustainable one that brings dignity and justice to the Palestinian people. If a deal goes through that provides a meaningful solution to to Palestinians' quest for independence and the things that they want, 
what significance would this have? I mean, what what is your kind of headline of what possibilities this holds? If Palestine gets an independent state with all the semblances of sovereignty, then this would be a huge deal because it would upend the whole security architecture in the Middle East. It would usher in a real peace for the first time since the end of the World War II era in which we've seen the creation of various states in the region, including Israel, but with a lot of lingering files and chapters, most prominently being the Palestinian one. I pointed out that a Palestinian state seems very far off, and if that is the condition for a deal, it would make a deal very unlikely. He thinks this deal may come in stages. Without a Palestinian state, the Saudis may just begin with a smaller step toward Israel. But let me tell you something. They've been playing with words in terms of, oh, is it a big bang deal or are we going to go through phases? Then it keeps the door open to striking that big bang towards the end. That was Badr Asif. He teaches history at Kuwait University. NPR's Aya Batraoui covers Saudi Arabia. I asked her about the likelihood of a deal and when we might see one. This is a Saudi leadership that is hyper-focused on its own national security interests. This is a crown prince who is focused on what is best for Saudi Arabia. And if they're not going to be able to get the kind of concessions they need from this Israeli government for the Palestinians, what they're going to demand and what they're going to require are major security concessions from the Biden administration and from members of Congress across the aisle to guarantee that this deal is worth it for the kingdom. And so the question really is, what is the kingdom, what is Saudi Arabia going to get out of Washington in order to make it worth it for this crown prince to stand and shake hands or any member of his government with this hardline right-wing Israeli government at this particular time in history? NPR's Aya Batraoui. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR. I'm John Carpilio. Tap and listen to WBUR anywhere this summer takes you. Listen live and catch up on anything you missed. Download or update the WBUR app right now. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zoo New England. Boston Lights, presented by National Grid, is back at Franklin Park Zoo. Experience hundreds of amazing lanterns nightly through October 29th. FranklinParkZoo.org. Stay with us. Coming up next at 6 o'clock, it's the New Yorker Radio Hour. And coming to City Space on Friday, August 25th, the Mortified Podcast. It will feature true stories of teen angst told from the adults who experienced that teen angst. Tickets at WBUR.org slash events. Showers and thunderstorms will fade away tonight with mostly clear skies, 60s, sunny 80s tomorrow. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. The death toll from the wildfires in Maui has risen to at least 93. This as officials warn that finding and identifying bodies in the rubble has just begun. Police say crews with cadaver dogs have searched just a fraction of the search area. Hundreds of people are listed as missing.
In western China, rescuers continue to search for people still missing after a mudslide and flash flood last week. Officials say at least 21 people are dead. And at the weekend box office, Barbie continues her run as the number one film, bringing in an estimated $33 million this weekend for a global take of $1.1 billion. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org. From Jarl and Pamela Mohn, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people at wtgrantfdn.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Daniel Estrin. When students head back to school this month, many will be in classes where speaking up counts toward their grades and where collaboration is highly valued. Student-led discussions and team projects can be valuable to learning. They can also be draining for introverted students who may do their best thinking on their own or in quiet settings. KQED's MindShift podcast visits a language arts classroom where an extroverted teacher has developed creative ways of, invited in, of inviting introverted students to share their thinking. Hosts Kara Newhouse and Nima Gobier take it from here. Nima, do you consider yourself an introvert or an extrovert? Do you get your energy from solo time or do you get a buzz from parties and group outings? I'm definitely an introvert. How did that affect you in school? It was a little stressful. My heart rate would jump when I was called on in class, and there were many times that I'd know the answer to a question, and I just wouldn't raise my hand to say it out loud. Those are pretty normal reactions for introverts. So that's what we'll talk about today. In this episode, we'll explore how teachers can set up class discussions to invite participation from all students. Also, we'll learn how to reimagine student engagement so it doesn't just mean talking a lot. A third to a half of the population are introverts. A third to a half. So that's one out of every two or three people you know. Listeners might have heard author Susan Cain talk about introverts. She wrote the book Quiet, and she gave a viral TED Talk in 2012. So extroverts really crave large amounts of stimulation, whereas introverts feel that they're most alive and they're most switched on and they're most capable when they're in quieter, more low-key environments. Not all the time, you know, these things are an absolute, but a lot of the time. These concepts weren't very well known back then, but it seems like a lot more people have learned about introverts since that TED Talk. But at the same time, in schools, teachers have been shifting toward what's called student-centered learning. In this model, teachers spend less time lecturing, and students are expected to take the lead in the learning process, which often means students have to do a lot of talking. There's a teacher who has done a lot of thinking about introverts and where they fit into student-centered learning. My name is Brent Vogelsinger. I'm a ninth grade English teacher at Holocon Middle School in Doylestown, Pennsylvania. Mr. Vogelsinger is an extrovert. 
In high school, he was always ready to raise his hand and speak up. So when he became a teacher, he thought that's just what it meant to be a good student. That idea would definitely leave me out of the good student category. It would leave out a lot of students. And Mr. Vogelsinger recognizes this. He's brutally honest about that flaw in how he used to think. I, w- I would even see a student in an honors class who wasn't super participatory, and I'd think to myself, what are they doing in an honors class? They don't seem that into English class. I don't really like that I thought that, but I did. So, Kara, what changed? Well, for one thing, he married an introvert. Seeing the differences between him and his wife made him realize... Introversion is not about being quiet, shy, or reserved. It's about feeling recharged and energized by quiet time, reflective time. And that's really, really valuable. And in English class, that's really valuable. And in learning, that's really valuable. He also began to notice that some of the most striking writing assignments came from students he rarely heard from in class. Over time, he started to see student participation in a new light. It took me a while to realize that someone can engage rigorously, mentally, with what's going on in the classroom, and you might not hear it as a teacher. So then how do we make that learning visible? How do we give them chances to share what they're learning? Kara, it sounds like Mr. Vogelsinger was demonstrating intellectual humility and in how he viewed introverts. That's really helpful for teachers' growth. True. I went to Pennsylvania to see how he goes about engaging introverted students. I'm going to share two of his strategies with you. Are you ready? I'm ready. Like most English classrooms, Mr. Vogelsinger's room is lined with bookshelves. There are also literary-themed artworks on the walls and grammar jokes on the whiteboard. Okay, there we go. Guys, welcome. At this point, if Camus is on your screen, just sort of alligate to that screen for me for a moment so we don't um, get distracted by anything. We'll come back to that in just a few minutes. On this spring day, as students walk in, they find yellow and white index cards on each desk. Those will be used a little later. First, there's some of the usual classroom startup. Attendance, reminders about an upcoming assignment, Then it's time for the main feature, a discussion of one of the themes in Romeo and Juliet, fate versus decision-making. I want to give you a couple minutes to look at the message board. To look at the message board. And you can even write a little response to a friend if you think some of their thinking is great. I'm going to ask you to write a response to one This is the first detail to notice. Mr. Vogelsinger gives his students think time before large group discussions. In this case, they had already responded to a message board about the topic. Letting them review what they wrote and read their peers' responses meant that introverted students weren't being put on the spot when they started talking. We're going to have a whole discussion today about the tension between fortune and fate and luck in Romeo and Juliet and characters' decisions, good, bad, or otherwise, in the play, and the tension that Shakespeare creates between the two. Now here's where those yellow and white index cards on the desks come into play. This is a discussion style called White Snow, Yellow Snow. Just a reminder, white snow means you have a fresh new idea no one's brought up yet, and yellow means you're building, someone's been there already, you're building on uh, their ideas a little bit. Uh, Just like yellow snow means someone's been there uh, before. So take a moment and have those cards ready, because I do want to make sure that I don't miss somebody's thinking that connects to someone else's thinking. It helps me just keep track of the flow of conversation a little bit. Several students raise their white index card to kick things off. 
Um, go ahead, I'm at your point. Um, I feel like it's like, like for Juliet, it's like more like luck for her, but like for Romeo, like what does he expect? Like he's gonna. Fall this isn't the first time these ninth graders have done a white snow, yellow snow discussion. As they listen to each other speak, they shuffle between which card they have raised, depending on where the conversation is at and what they want to say. It sounds like our conversation is starting to center around Romeo. Good, so I see a lot of people following up with the yellow cards. Uh, go ahead, let's hear your thought, Romero. I think it's, uh, I think both points can kind of like, uh, I think both luck and decisions kind of The cards also provide pivot points for Mr. Vogelsinger as a facilitator. When one idea has been discussed for a bit, he calls on a student holding up a white card. Joe, take us in a new direction. Um, I must think that they like the idea that they're not supposed to like each other and it makes it even more interesting because they know that there's going to be repercussions because obviously their families have, little, have had a long hatred for each other. And they almost like the idea of like going behind each other. Kara, did most of the students participate? I heard a wide range of voices in both periods where I saw the white snow, yellow snow discussion. Thinking about introverts, there was one moment that stood out to me. Tell me about it. This is in first period. We're 12 minutes into the discussion, so about halfway through. Students have already identified a bunch of ways that the characters in Romeo and Juliet brought the tragic ending on themselves. Mr. Vogelsinger asked them to consider what elements were out of the character's control. I see one student tentatively raise a yellow card, the one they use to build on each other's ideas. She doesn't hold it the whole way up at first, but after another student speaks, she raises it higher. Yeah. Um, you can also consider it fate that he met Juliet because he originally went there for Rosalind. Right. That's sort of a twist that, we did, that he could control and didn't expect to happen or didn't try to make happen. Um, think about I wondered if this student would have spoken up without having the different cards to raise. After class, Mr. Vogelsinger talked about the exercise. It definitely gets more people talking, um, so the quantities of people go up. Plus, it just it interests them a little more. So like, instead of just raising a hand, which you're doing all day, now you have this other element, and you have to think about how it connects to other things with the white snow, yellow snow. So that's discussion strategy number one, white snow, yellow snow. Guys, um, thank you so much for your conversation today and the discussion. Leave the yellow and white cards on the desk. Use them really well. Um, I will see you on Monday. And of course, you have. Uh, oh, if anyone. Nima, are you ready to hear discussion strategy number two? Let's do it. This is during Mr. Vogelsinger's third period class. That's right before lunch. So this group of students is a little more antsy and in need of movement. Mr. Vogelsinger asks everyone to get out a blank piece of paper and write their answers to one question. We've been studying dramatic irony. We know things the characters don't know. If you could tell one character one thing that might fix this whole play, what would it be? Take maybe four minutes to write that and look over the message boards. We're ready to talk a little bit more as a class. Mr. Vogelsinger sets a timer, and when the timer dings... I want you to take your response, make sure your name is on the top of it, and then crumble it up into a paper ball that's going to sit on your desk. So now each student has a crumpled piece of paper at their desk. At the front of the room, there's a blue plastic crate on top of a podium. 
the discussion gets going. I would tell Romeo that there's more fish in the sea and not to get some so hungover over like a chick, you know. And after a few minutes, Mr. Vogelsinger pauses the discussion. Now, anyone who spoke so far gets a chance to throw their crumpled paper ball into the basket. No one fire till I'm out of the way. And then when I'm out of the way, if you've participated thus far, you can stand and try to take a shot. Go ahead. The class gets through three rounds of this basketball-style discussion before lunch. And most of the class did join in. In fact, as they head out the door to lunch, I hear one student saying to another, I actually participated today. But shooting the basket isn't the part that's specifically designed for introverts. Remember, those paper balls that they were shooting already had their written response to Mr. Vogelsinger's initial question. He collects those papers from anyone who didn't shoot a basket that day. That's all I have for you. Thanks, guys. After class, he reads through them. This is something that didn't come up in the verbal conversation in class. I would tell Romeo that Lady Capulet is sending an assassin after him. That didn't come up in the regular discussion because she's going to send someone with poison, she says, to Mantua to kill him. So, I mean, that was a, a great observation that I kind of wish would have come up in class. But I can still respond to the student now this way. I asked if the students who didn't speak are usually quieter in class. All three of them, yes. Yeah. But in a normal, in just a regular classroom conversation, I wouldn't have had anything from them. So I wouldn't have known they had these thoughts. A few years ago, he and the other freshman English teachers developed a self-reflection that students do quarterly. It covers a bunch of topics related to their academic work, and one of the questions is... Engagement and participation are vital to success, but can look different to different students. Explain how you participate and engage in class. It seems like reflecting on that question would be valuable to all students, not just introverts. Their answers might be different, but introverted and extroverted students can learn a lot by thinking about what they do when they're really engaged in learning. When I was in school, I knew that I felt nervous raising my hand, but I was never asked what else I was doing to drive my learning. Hopefully, by asking those kinds of questions and incorporating the answers into lesson plans, teachers will spark new ideas for engaging all students and help students discover that they too have control over their learning. The MindShift team includes me, Kara Newhouse, Nima Gobir, Ki Sung, and Marlena Jackson Rotondo. Our editor is Chris Hambrick. Seth Samuel is our sound designer. MindShift is a podcast from KQED that explores the future of learning and how we raise our kids. Their new season covers topics like improving dress codes, dealing with emotions in math class, and how schools can adapt to climate change. Next week at this time, we'll bring you another podcast we love from the NPR Network. This is NPR News.
In the last century, the U.S. has not seen a more deadly wildfire than the one which just destroyed parts of Maui in Hawaii. Ninety-three people have been confirmed killed, and officials say that number will likely keep going up. More than 2,200 homes and buildings were damaged or destroyed. But in all the destruction, local residents are banding together to move massive amounts of food and water for those in need. NPR's Lauren Summer is in Maui and joins us now. Hi, Lauren. Hi, Daniel. So, Lauren, this fire has now surpassed the fatalities caused by California's campfire, which hit the town of Paradise in 2018. What can you tell us about the search efforts for the victims in Maui? Yeah, the process is still very much ongoing. Yesterday, Maui's police chief said only 3% of the burned area has been covered by teams with search dogs. More of those teams are arriving on the island. But, you know, access to the side of Maui around Lahaina, which saw most of the destruction, has been really limited, even for residents who live there. Wow. So part of Maui is restricted. What is the experience like for people who live there? There's been a huge amount of frustration. The checkpoint line to get in yesterday was hours long, a huge line of cars. And that's where I met Rachel Carter. She lives in Lahaina and fled the flames with her son. It's hard to talk about it when you're watching, you know, people running away and burning and getting burned. And and you don't know where you're going to stay, what you're going to do, if you're even going to have food. She got out of Lahaina and has been waiting to get back in to see what happened to her home. And and her car was actually packed up with supplies for her community, like food and bottled water. They told us that we weren't allowed to get in, that they shut it down. So now we have all these supplies to take care of our people and the people who are stuck and no way to get it through to them. My goodness. So is there such a huge need for food and supplies for residents? Yeah, I mean, many residents there have spent days without power. So, you know, people's food is spoiling and the tap water still isn't considered safe to drink. State officials are providing some supplies. You know, FEMA is arriving increasing numbers, too. But the rest of Maui has really rallied to help them. You know, right on the waterfront near that checkpoint, there were dozens of volunteers loading crates of food and water into trucks. They've actually been able to negotiate access with emergency officials. Okay, so you have this monumental effort to get supplies to residents, and that's, you know, you have officials, but also just volunteers. Talk more about those efforts. Yeah, that group, one of the organizers, John Kempf, told me that the hard part is actually getting the supplies out in the community there, you know, not just to these centralized checkpoints that are that are in the area. A lot of the locals are just bunkering down in their hooies. They're gathering their families together and just staying put because they don't have any Wi-Fi or power. Kem says, you know, that volunteer group came together really informally. It's actually a WhatsApp texting group. And, and every day, more and more people have just been showing up to help. So just to see the community come together with no hesitation from where this was two days ago to where it is now is just a testament to, like, the heart of these people to take care of their brothers and sisters in this island. You know, I've, I've covered a lot of wildfires, and I've never seen this kind of volunteer groundswell before. I mean, the roads are just filled with people loading water and food and donations into trucks. It's a really close-knit island, and people here have really taken disaster response into their own hands, and they're, they're filling that need for each other. NPR's Lauren Summer in Maui. Thank you so much, Lauren. Thank you. This is NPR News.
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm John Carpilio. Thanks so much for joining us. The New Yorker Radio Hour is next at 6. And tonight, the end of affirmative action and the movement to end legacy admissions. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. Calling 911 can have tragic consequences for people experiencing a mental health crisis. They can be arrested or even killed. Some advocates and police officers are trying to change that. If it's somebody who's autistic, you're not coming up with lights blaring and sirens going. I'm Deborah Becker, Rethinking Policing and Mental Health. That's On Point, Monday at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Showers and thunderstorms in the area will fade out uh, during the evening with uh, clear skies, 60s, tomorrow mostly sunny, low 80s. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. Poland's ruling party added a voter referendum to the country's national election scheduled for October that will ask citizens to vote on whether they support a sell-off of state-owned companies. Critics call the measure an effort to mobilize its conservative base. Kellogg is the latest company to face challenges to its DEI policy. It's come under scrutiny as part of a larger campaign by a conservative legal group. And Illinois' governor this weekend signed a law banning firearm ads that officials say are targeting children. It's now the eighth state to have such a law that rolls back legal protections for firearms manufacturers or distributors. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. From the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org and from the sustaining members of this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Daniel Estrin. It's Sunday, which means another conversation from my colleague Rachel Martin from her series called Enlighten Me. In a series like this, there are a couple of phrases that are hard to avoid. Spiritual journey, for one. It is so overused, so cliche, it drives me crazy. The other is seeker, which is another one of those words that just seems so self-indulgent and unnecessarily precious. But the fact is, the people I'm talking with in this project are definitely on some kind of spiritual path. And they are looking for answers to existential questions. And by definition, that makes them seekers. The conversation I'm bringing you today is with someone who just leans into all of it. He wouldn't be annoyed at being called a seeker, far from it. His latest book actually calls for a spiritual revolution in America. Why the hell would the guy who played Dwight on The Office be writing a book about spirituality? This is Rain Wilson, and even though he himself is a very funny guy, he is not joking about this at all. I talked to him earlier this year, right after his book called Soul Boom came out. We like the conversation so much, we're going to share it with you again. We start off talking about his early spiritual influences, 
which included a certain TV show about all kinds of ethical quandaries and intergalactic space travel. When I discovered Star Trek, it changed my life. I mean, yes, it is a bunch of folks on a spaceship boldly going where no man has gone before. But it's also about the next stage of the evolution of humanity on planet Earth. You see, the backstory to Star Trek that a lot of people don't know is that there has been a horrific World War III, and coming out of the ashes of that war, humanity has essentially solved racism, solved sexism, has uh, solved income inequality, and is then able, in its maturity, to go out into space and explore and spread the word. Growing up in a Baha'i house, we were always talking about peace and love and transforming the world and um, service to humanity. And we would have Buddhist monks in the house. And when born-again Christians would knock on the door on Sunday morning, we'd invite them in and we'd cook them pancakes and talk about the resurrection or whatever topic du jour. And so we would always, I would always look at things through a spiritual lens. So for me, when I look at Star Trek, I talk about this in terms of a spiritual path that we all have an individual path that we walk on a daily basis. I'm trying to be a better person and I've got this stress at work and I'm feeling anxious and this person is mean to me and I'm struggling with this and that. And that's our personal spiritual path. And when people talk about spirituality, they're often focused on that aspect of a spiritual journey. And we're not focused so much on the broader one, which is mm -hmm. humanity's spiritual maturation into living in global peace and harmony. I am old enough, NPR, to remember the 70s when people would actually talk mm -hmm. about world peace. And mean it, and, not like as an irony, right. And mean it. And we believed that we could have uh, peace, especially with the end of the Cold War. And nowadays you bring up world peace and you just get that big collective eye roll like, oh my God, you're the most naive idiot to walk the face of the earth to even consider world peace. Human animals are self-serving and aggressive and backstabbing and will never have peace. We'll only have a kind of detente where hopefully we're not blowing each other up as we slowly, slowly destroy our planet all the while. So, And do you not think that? I don't think that. I think that there is a one story of humanity, which is tribal and which is about aggression and is about conquest. And that's one story. That's one mythology of humanity, right? There's another one where humans lived at peace with nature, where humans were cooperative uh, or kind to each other, uh, were worked together, um, shared knowledge and uh, enlightenment and move forward and into progress. So we can focus on that mythology of humanity. Like a lot of people who grew up in a faith tradition, they inherit it from their parents, right? You fell away like so many people do, but then in your early 20s, you were going through a hard time you were working through a lot of mental health issues and you found it again. Can you walk me through what that process was like? Did it feel very comfortable, like going back home or were you hesitant about 
<laughs> it's sort of not the cool thing to be like. It's so not cool to be religious. <laughs> it is, and and it's so funny because I've always identified as being a dork and a misfit and an outsider. Maybe that's why I played Dwight so effectively. Apparently, um, and Hollywood comics and comedic actors are filled with misfits and alienated outsiders. But then you throw into the mix. I'm a religious person and my religious faith, which is the Baha'i faith, is a very important part of my life. Uh, oh, Rain Wilson is also a member of this obscure Eastern religion and talks about God with Oprah and, and whatnot. Like they believe me, the, the stand-up comics and comedic actors of Hollywood have no idea what to do. I alienated even the unalienatable. <laughs> but yes, you're absolutely right. I rejected anything and everything to do with religion and faith and spirituality when I was in my 20s and pursuing my career as an actor and my education as an actor in the theater in New York. I didn't want anything to do with morality um, or God or hypocrisy of religion. I viewed religion as a weakness used as a crutch by weak people and um, spent many years as an atheist. And well, then things just started to break down for me. So uh, I suffered from really crippling anxiety. I had uh, regular anxiety attacks that uh, would render me lying on the floor in a pool of sweat, no joke. Hmm. But it led me back on a spiritual quest where I was like, you know, maybe I lost something by getting rid of hmm. anything and everything to do with spirituality. Maybe, maybe there's some answer there. So... Hmm. Go figure. You described talking to friends in this time about what they thought about a higher power and you were not satisfied with their answers. What were they telling you? So I would ask my friends, hey, do you believe in God? Which is a great way, to, a Good great conversation. Good time at parties, Rain Wilson. <laughs> I would go to parties and be like, hey, do you believe in God? And people would gulp and turn ashen and bolt Where's in the, the other direction. Yeah. Uh, check, please. <laughs> but almost to a person, uh, my artist friends would say, well, I certainly don't believe in an old man on a cloud, you know, with an agenda scowling down at us. But I definitely, I believe that there's something more out there. There's some kind of energy, some kind of eternal creative juice, something going on out there. And that was fine. And I was with them on that. But that wasn't enough for me. I was like, wait a second. So... Yeah. There either is a God or there's not. But do you really not think there's a gradation? Like, you're so sure that there is God? Oh, yeah. Sure is not the word. Um, I know there's a God. Um, it's not a faith thing. God is as real to me as, as my body is. Um, let me put it this way. Let's back up and get a little mystical for a second. Yeah. In the Baha'i faith, there's a prayer we say every day where we say, um, I bear witness, O oh my God, that thou hast created me to know thee and to worship thee. And we say this prayer every day. We have been created to know and worship God, according to the Baha'i mythology. And at the same time, in the Baha'i writings, the number one way to describe God is unknowable. So here we are, we have been created to know the unknowable. I love that. <laughs> that makes my head 
sizzle with excitement. I get that. So I'm trying to know the great mystery, to know the unknowable. That's a process. It's not a destination. It's not something you arrive at. It's an ever-evolving process of understanding what it is to be in the midst of life. You believe there's God. You believe God made the world and that there is also intention in that is what I discerned from your writing, that, the, that it's not all random, right? And I'm going to quote from your book. Surely it, God, can't have created all of us sad and beautiful human beings and cast us on this planet like a bunch of ants in an ant farm to simply have at it with a good luck pat on the back and a sign off of, hey, enjoy all this random useless beauty. But, but why not? I wrote that? That's you really did. good. That's good. I know, I love that. But... <laughs> But I, I guess I am. I stand in awe of your assuredness as someone who, who myself is is seeking some kind of um, intention in the randomness of life. Um, but how do you know it's not all just random? How do I know? I guess the best analogy I can give is that I know that I love. I know that I love my wife. I know that I love my son. I know that I love my father who passed away a few years back. And forgive me for, for tearing up on the radio. It's a terrible place to tear up on. Um, it's the best because we can't see you. Uh, but, uh, and how do I know that? Like, if I went into a scientist and said, prove to me that I love, and they'd say, well, we're going to do some brain scans and an MRI and a CT scan, and we're going to look at what parts of your brain light up. and But that's not love. That's not love. And I will never believe that love is simply a, a chemical neurological response in order to, you know, continue the species propagating itself. Um, my experience of love is far deeper and more profound than that. So that's the first step in knowing that there is a creative force um, in the universe, is I know that there is love. I also know that there is beauty. I also know that there is art and there is music. And all of these things that are ineffable and transcendent and uh, transport my spirits um are 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 footprints they're they're handholds on the path to finding the great mystery you write that sacredness is a condition and i loved that line if sacredness is a condition, how does that manifest for you in a daily way? Boy, that's such a great question. I want to go to the quote that I can't quite remember from Thich Nhat Hanh, but it's essentially in the eyes of someone who is awake, all things are sacred. And uh, there has been 
a profound loss of the sacred in contemporary Western civilization. Uh, nothing is sacred anymore. Um, and I think sacredness and holiness is part of the conversation that we need to have um, collectively. You know, what what is sacred and how does it work? We can certainly experience it in nature. Um, and, you know, for religious people, we can experience it in holy sites. But how can we nurture the sacred uh, as a condition in our hearts that we can carry with us so that a conversation like we're having can be sacred? So that, you know, a place where you contemplate life in the world can be sacred. Um, to see sacredness in the everyday means purging yourself of cynicism, doesn't it? Which is sort of the social currency of the moment, it seems. Yeah, I um, was fortunate as an actor to study with the great acting teacher, Andre Gregory, the focus of the movie, My Dinner with Andre. And he would meet with the students and I had tea with him once and he said, how are you doing, Rain? And I said, you know, Andre, I'm just feeling so cynical. I'm feeling pessimistic. Nothing's, the world is a pile of crap and it's getting worse. And I'll never forget this experience. He grabbed my arm. I mean, even back then he was like 80 years old. Now he's like 110. He grabbed my arm like a vice and he looked into my eyes and he said, stop it. Don't do it. Don't be cynical. Everything wants you to be cynical. Everything out there in the world wants you to be pessimistic. If you're cynical, they win. You have to keep hope alive. And that was transformative. And I walked out into the West Village out of his apartment and I really saw the world in a different way and realized that fostering hope and fostering joy in others is maybe our highest spiritual calling that we can do. We have to keep hope alive that we can transform ourselves, that we can transform the planet. And that is a key pillar to the spiritual revolution. Rain Wilson, his new book is called Soul Boom, Why We Need a Spiritual Revolution. Thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you so much. Thanks for 